Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Mythic Mission with Professor Michael Jahosky. This is Season 2, Episode 3. Now, I don't have any fancy titles for today's episode. Um, this is an episode that I've, uh, I did for uh, my Aunt Dale, who unfortunately just passed away yesterday on Ash Wednesday uh, of her uh, battle with cancer. She fought very, very hard and heroically against that terrible disease that uh, we know everybody hates. Um, very, very reflective today. I um, took off today to uh, spend some time in prayer. I really needed a mental health day and a spiritual health day and uh, spent a lot of time in scripture and in prayer and uh, just reflecting on life lessons. And also we had a beautiful Ash Wednesday service. Uh, we had to stay home, unfortunately, because some of our family are still sick, but um, it was all just very emotional last 12 to 24 hours, um, but much more so for my mom and uh, the uh, other um, of Dale's sisters and brother, my aunts and uncle, um, that uh, I really hope that you all um, know and learn something about uh, my relationship with your sister, my aunt. Aunt Dale and I have been corresponding for many years uh, about a number of things. She was very, very proud of my podcast and my book and um, could not have been uh, a bigger fan <laughs> and uh, making that very well known through emojis and uh, images and her emails that she frequently sent to me. Um, of course, my uh, my absolute biggest fan has been my wife and kids and my mom and dad and in-laws, but uh, Aunt Dale um, was right there with them. She was very supportive and uh, always remembered our birthdays. And I say a little bit more about it on the episode today, our, our relationship, and I'm just very pleased that uh, we had grown close over the last three or four years and uh, we've been corresponding quite a bit. I also loved in uh, almost every email she had a crown, which is very much like the crown you may sometimes see in the background of our interviews, our video interviews that uh, my mom actually got uh, after the book was published. It's it's almost identical. So it's a king's crown and uh, she always would sign some of her emails, the king lives within us all or within all of us. And I, I love that. And anyway, I'd like to read a couple of things that uh, my Aunt Dale wrote me to celebrate her life. and. I want to thank my Uncle Martin for taking such great care of her, and uh, my, our hearts go out to you as you're grieving and mourning the loss of your wife, and we miss her, and uh, yet we know that she will have a new body and uh, is with love, loving family members now, and, and we will see her again. So we're just very grateful that she's at peace, but uh, we do miss her dearly. So this episode today is actually funny because it, it's something that I think uh, my Aunt Dale probably would have benefited from sooner because she had some trouble, I think, with, uh, understandably so, some of the technical chapters in my book. And yet she read them anyway. She she got through them and she was always so sweet not to, uh, I think she was trying not to offend me, um, that, that it was a little bit dense and that's okay, it, it is. Uh, so she was just so funny in some of the things she, she said and uh, she didn't offend me at all. Uh, but she she read, you know, she read stuff that I, I didn't even know she was into uh, poetry and English culture. And so uh, little did I know her and her husband were were huge Tolkien fans. And so I want to read some of the things she said. And I just kind of chuckled because this issue came up on the Mythic Mission group on Facebook the other day about allegory. Obviously, I address it extensively in, uh, in my book, but um, I, I've shared some new information here today. And uh, I had some time today where... After a lot of time just being reflective, I, I wanted to do something and I wanted to do something to honor her memory. And I, I found an email as I was going over the emails today, just kind of remembering her uh, that she wrote that had to do with this chapter on allegory. So I thought it was very apropos and also kind of addresses some of the people 
on the group who uh, maybe haven't read my book yet or want to go into a deeper conversation. So I hope you enjoy it. And uh, I know that my Aunt Dale can hear it. So uh, Aunt Dale, I hope you enjoy it as well. So she says in uh, one email, all of us are drawn to hero stories and wonderful victories over evil. As children, we want to be firemen, policemen, doctors, defenders, Indian chiefs living in nature, lifesavers and superheroes, wonderful moms, good partners, nurses, and carers. This book details why this is and how we are actually made in the image of God. You'll completely love this work. It's incredibly healing, soothing, and indeed, it's great news. Um, I like to think maybe my, my aunt uh, really felt that the book helped her as uh, she's been battling some health issues for many years. So this was just so great to go back over and read these notes that we had sent back and forth to each other and to see now in retrospect, just how much that mean meant to her and now how much more it even means to me. Um, it's, it's profound. Um, she, she then says, uh, boy, oh boy, I have been, I've been enjoying this fabulous book by our wonderful family member, Michael T. Jahosky, the good news of the return of the King of gospel middle earth. Michael has worked for five years to produce the work. She, she knew, she knew this. Um, she's, it's fabulous in every way. The book is so educational, edifying and details are inherent divine human qualities, which uh, God has put in us as in his imagers, which long for and aspire to attain a higher consciousness against the evils of the world. Now, those of you who don't know, I, I believe my aunt Dale was a practicing Buddhist. I, I don't know all of those details, but she grew up uh, Christian and grew up in a Catholic family. And so um, you might see some of that in, in our correspondence here that I'm reading, but um, she loved me. She loved this book and it seems that she really enjoyed it, which is just the greatest compliment I could ever get. And um, anyway, I'm, I'm so glad to have um, been able to speak to her about this over the years. I have so many other wonderful memories of, of her growing up, laying on her lap as she tickled my hair as a kid in Oyster Bay, Long Island. My grandmother, uh, Aunt Dale, and my mom, and the, my other aunts and uncles' mom, uh, she had a house with a bay window, and there was a couch there. I would lay there on her lap, and she would tell us stories, my brother and I, about mangoes that she would find and eat when she had uh, had some time living in the Caribbean. And uh, just, just she was a great storyteller, and it was clear from our email correspondence, excuse me, that she also loved poetry and stories and obviously Lord of the Rings. She says, uh, if you haven't read the Lord of the Rings trilogy as yet to your children, and this is really, this really got me today, because uh, as you know, from the past couple episodes, I've mentioned that we have been reading these books to, um, to our kids. And so this just means that much more. She says, you might as well begin because it's all encompassing with respect to victory against the worst of times. Uh, it may be just what everyone needs right now, a deterrent against what is happening in the world today. Martin, her husband, read the trilogy to his children three times, and he can't put Michael's book down. It's also a good idea to revisit the trilogy. If you don't have children as yet, we are approaching a very critical time in the world. She was sending this email, I think, to some other family members as well that uh, can revive us with strength and, re strength and resolve. Love to all, Dale and Martin. And then uh, the funny, <laughs> I'll end on this and, and enjoy today's um, episode that's uh, dedicated to my Aunt Dale. Um, she says, I wish to let you know that I have been continuing reading your book. It's pretty dense and it's a good book to examine thoroughly. I especially like the part that describes evil. The vocabulary is also very inspiring. Just wanted to let you know that I'm still enjoying it in every sense. And Martin and I discuss it often. Uh, she felt the need to kind of check back in with me and tell me, which was just amazing. Congratulations on your wondrous work again and again. Um, 
Somewhere in one of these emails, she also says, you will continue to have heaven's blessings blessings poured out on you. That was so typical of my Aunt Dale. She would always have some very encouraging message to share with me and my wife and uh, really just showed how much she cared. And uh, she had even said in this email, can't wait till COVID goes away so you can travel up to Oxford and give a lecture on it. Not that we're anybody important, but we can suggest they make you an invitation. Um, I think her husband had some connection to Oxford. Uh, you can visit the Tolkien and Lewis's graves as well. So I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Um, I appreciate your prayers and just keep my family in your prayers. And thank you, as always, uh, for joining us on the mission. And uh, Antel, we will um, see you again soon. God bless. If you know me personally, you know I don't sit still for very long and I, I have to learn the discipline of rest better. Uh, but another uh, sort of way of looking at this is it's a blessing and a strength because things motivate me and push me in uh, to directions in my studies and prayers to give some great content like what I feel you know God has prepared for us today. So yesterday um, I learned that my Aunt Dale passed away. She was struggling and fighting a very heroically, I might add, uh, cancer. Um, I just want to say that uh, my Aunt Dale and I were, were close. We, uh, we got closer in the last three years. I'll say more about that in a minute. We were close when I was a, was a kid. Certainly, um, I didn't get a lot of time to spend with my mom's side of the family as much as I wanted to uh, in my teenage and young adult years. Um, and so, you know, there was a, a, a gap where we were all traveling and living in different places and wouldn't say grew apart, not like myself and other family members, unfortunately, have, but just uh, life has kind of, you know, caused us to lose touch, uh, but on good terms. But until uh, 2019 and 20, actually 2018, the last four years, I can't remember exactly when, but my Aunt Dale and her husband, um, Uncle Martin, uh, were reaching out and were just uh, always remembering our birthdays and inquiring about our children and our lives. And she was always so thoughtful. Uh, they were at our wedding in 2009 and were, oh man, tearing up the dance floor <laughs> and had some really great moves and were a life of the party, no doubt. Um, and um, my Aunt Dale uh, also, and this is kind of tough for me, but uh, you know why it kind of impacted me and why I felt the need to get up and do something today. So I want to dedicate this episode to my Aunt Dale and to my suffering um, family, especially my, my aunts and uncle, uh, you know, my mom first and foremost, and my aunts, uh, Donna and Debbie and Jojo, and my uncle Tony, um, who are her siblings uh, that she's um, you know, left for the time being. And of course, um, to other cousins uh, and, uh, and other family members that are affected by this great loss. And I know others were even much closer than I was with her. So I want to devote it to her to her memory. And the uh, reason why is because I know she would love this information. And I want to see if I can pull up just a few sweet things that uh, we corresponded about. And especially the last three years, since 2019, when I, when I um, switched publishers for my first, first book and uh, finally was able to land a publisher with Whippenstock, which I'm grateful for, um, we started corresponding a lot. And I just have to say, aside from my mom and dad, and of course, uh, first and foremost, my wife and kids, um, Aunt Dale was another big cheerleader and it just really kind of made me cry and uh, it was very moving the last couple of days and actually last week when I learned that she was really, really sick and that she had kind of started uh, you know, deteriorating, which happened last week and my mom let me know 
Um, it's so sweet that back on uh, in 2020, actually, so this was right uh, when my book came out, although the correspondence goes back further. She found my book on Amazon UK, uh, where her Kindle happened to be registered, and she's downloading it. She had all these emojis and tells me she's been reading Erasmus, light reading, Antil. <laughs> Congratulations, Michael, and a bunch of stickers and things she sent to me. Um, you know, I told her I was honored and that uh, please let me know if you have any questions. And she said she read part of the introduction last night. It's honestly excellent. I'm going to get back to the book early today as I arrive for a treatment that she's uh, looking to get. I'm assuming this was for the um, illnesses. She had a couple others, I believe. I'm sorry if I misspoke their family, but I know that, um, you know, cancer was one of them. She was going to be busy for three and a half hours, so she wanted to have access to what she says, this worthy subject matter written by our brilliant and passionate nephew. Martin has read The Lord of the Rings three times. Go, Martin. Yeah. And that they loved uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's books. They visited his grave while they were uh, at Oxford and frequented the pub where they met. Uh, that is the Inklings. And she loved the title of the book. And I have to say there's just there's just so many other great lines, but this one really got me. Erasmus writes that we are dead if we do not keep Jesus in our heart, for he is the giver of life. And that, uh, that was just reading that again today and kind of seeing that was uh, very moving. And so I, I pray for my Aunt Dale that she's found peace and uh, that we all love you very much. And uh, we're all going to miss you very much. And I just have so many other great things I'd like to read from my Aunt Dale and Uncle Martin that they sent to me. Uh, just one more thing, perhaps in 2020, I think is when she also had sent us a birthday gift. Uh, she was talking to me about her love of British culture and magic and myth and, uh, you know, that they were just loving poetry and they thought my accomplishment was, was so great. And just the way that she always reached out and thought of others and, I probably didn't do as great a job at, at inquiring into her life as I should have till it was too late. And this is always the way of it. So as a warning to all of us, when, when death comes into our lives in ways, we need to examine ourselves and realize that even with, you know, aunts and uncles, I mean, maybe not immediate family members, we need to reevaluate how, um, how hard we're working to try to stay in touch. And within reason, yes, I can beat myself up here, maybe a little too much, but just seeing the degree of passion and devotion she had to me and, and why would she have to? Um, and, and yes, I did write longer emails back and I, yes, I can say I was busy at the time, but those are excuses. I didn't always write back as much as I did. It was always just sort of thankful responses back to her, but not really as, you know, verbose, uh, in a sweet way that she was just always so articulate and, and writing me these supportive notes, I wish I, basically what I'm saying is I wish I had responded a little bit lengthier and took the time. I did ask how they were doing, but in a, not in just such a nominal way, I wish I had gone deeper. So we all probably have found ourselves thinking these thoughts before when we lose people that we love and, and even especially come back into contact with and then, and then, you know, um, realize that they're gone now and that we can't, you know, do better. So yes, perhaps I'm being hard on myself, but at the same time, I wanted to highlight as a reflection, as a prayerful reflection that this is a great Christ-like example. My Aunt Dale always seemed to be reaching into our lives and I could have done better to reach back into her life. And so as a message to my family, all of my family, the Jahaskis, the Capazolis, the Sims, we all need to 
remember to try to stay as close as we can and to rouse ourselves before things like this happen um, that kind of force us to reflect and force us to look at ourselves and have these thoughts. And then most importantly, kind of like the 9-11 mentality where the whole country was united and then it was kind of dissipates. And to a certain extent, this is expected. We all get busy. We all have lives. But the other on the other end of the spectrum, I suppose, um, is that we need to start making it a more permanent part or facet of our lives to be more intentional. And so I'm trying to do that more. And um, I certainly think I try harder than most. Uh, I like to think that that's something that people who know me well uh, say about me. And I appreciate that. And anyway, I want to devote this uh, episode um, to my Aunt Dale, uh, where I know she is in a uh, better place with the Lord Jesus and that I pray that she has found the peace and rest that she greatly deserves and that she will be given a new body and that we will all see her again uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, she will be her normal, ebullient, bubbly, beautiful self that she is in all these emails. And uh, as I remember her at our wedding, so I'm very grateful for you all listening to that, and uh, we need to get on with the show, um, but I also want to just thank my family for allowing me to express this uh, and uh, share this with you all. So uh, I don't know how many of you in my family are aware that we were corresponding, so hopefully you found that uh, insightful. And there's so much more uh, that we did kind of go back and forth, and I'm just looking now back all the way to 2018, just kind of just shooting the breeze and talking back and forth with each other. So I'm, I'm grateful that at least in these last few years, I've made somewhat of an effort, but I wish I had made more of an effort. And um, that's just too often that we find ourselves thinking that way. So I, I pray and I've been more intentional about my prayer life and my own personal life and, and my study life and kind of fighting back some of the discouragement and other things in my life that have been holding me back and trying to be better, to be more Christ-like, to to do it with Christ's help. And so this is one of those things I'm going to bring alongside all those other things I'm trying to be better at and be more intentional about. And I hope um, that that is an inspiration for you out there if you need to hear it. So thank you all also for being um, respectful of uh, the, the, uh, the information I'm going to be sharing today. Um, I'm um, happy to share it. And I'm happy to say that a lot of it is already stuff you've probably heard from me in my book, or if you've listened to episodes seven or 13, as we said in season one, but I also know for a fact that you're going to hear a lot of new things. Okay. And so I'm, I'm going to start by saying that the episode today is about uh, first and foremost, trying to set the record straight about what I was arguing in my first book about Tolkien and allegory. And I'd like to start as any good philosopher will tell you in the necessity of defining our terms to the best of our ability before delving into the heart of today's episode. And then I wanna actually tell you what the heart of today's episode is first, kind of give you the uh, place where I hope we end up, which is where I ended up in my book, my first book, and then catch up to that throughout the rest of the episode, defining our terms and also seeing how these terms overlap and interlock. And then also kind of talking about, um, there's one final issue, you know, I'm gonna give you the sort of conclusion of the episode today first, but there's one sort of sub-issue that goes with that conclusion that has to do with the words of Tolkien himself on this issue. So we're actually going to finish on that. Uh, and uh, that all goes back to my book. And so I've rearranged a lot of material in my book that's sort of in different places here. And I've also added new material. And some of this new material is going into my current book project that I'm working on that 
has to do with uh, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia series. And so I'm very excited about that. So let's get started. So we need to first start with where we're going to end up, that The Lord of the Rings, I argue in my book, and this is not my idea. Um, I'm so glad somebody else had it, though, because I didn't feel so crazy when I learned this. As Sally McFaig has called it in her book, Speaking in Parables, a parabolic novel. And I also quote this in my text, in my book a couple of times. The Lord of the Rings is a parabolic novel. Uh, before I forget, let me, give, let me give most of my sources up front here. I think I forgot one or two. For further reading and suggested reading, let me give you those first. And that way, when I kind of just uh, quote these authors by their last name, you're not going to be like, huh? Um, and then let me come back to what McFaig means by that. And this, this heart of the episode today, that the Lord of the Rings is a parabolic novel. Okay, so my first recommendation is Sally McFig's book, Speaking in Parables. It's an old book. I've got it sitting here right in front of me. It's from, let's see, 1975. It was republished, reprinted in 2007, founded on Amazon. Dylan, I'm Dylan. Uh, my, my wife is going to crack up uh, because this is sort of an ongoing joke <laughs> with Family Guy episode. Uh, some of you might know uh, the Family Guy episode where Peter Griffin is laying in bed and he says, uh, hey, Lois is Dylan McDermott nice in Python? And uh, <laughs> I just said, I was about to say Dylan McDermott. And it's funny because Sarah has called me out on this a couple of times when I've said, uh, well, you know, in that book by Gerald R. McDermott, which is his actual name called Everyday Glory. And I'm sorry, Dr. McDermott, this has nothing to do with you. You're a fantastic scholar. It's just a unfortunate confusion. His book, Everyday Glory, which my wife just finished reading and loving too, and she always says, is he nice in person? And it always catches me off guard because I'm like, ah, she's referring to the Family Guy episode. So there I go, Sarah. I, I said it. So you're happy, I'm sure. Sally McFaig speaking in parables, parables book. Gerald R. McDermott's Everyday Glory book, which is a relatively recent book. Gisela Kreglinger's book, Storied Revelations, which is also a Whippenstock book. I might have to just say, way to go, Kreglinger, for, for also repping Whip and Stock, great publisher. Uh, and that book is about George MacDonald and Christian fiction, by the way. So that's another reason why I recommend it to you. I know uh, some of my friends out there uh, may be interested in George MacDonald. Uh, and uh, let's see, Hans Borsma's book, which is called Heavenly Participation, the un- what is the subtitle? Hold on, I can't see it. There it is. The weaving, excuse me, not the un, the weaving of a sacramental tapestry. It's an excellent book. Uh, C.S. Lewis, Various Writings and Letters. I'm going to be referring to his uh, essay um, about um, uh, Bunyan and uh, transposition. There's, there's a couple of essays and, and letters I'll be quoting from Lewis. The Letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, edited by uh, Humphrey Carpenter. Brad Young's book, uh, he's a, I believe, a Jewish scholar. I don't know if he himself, excuse me, is Jewish, but works in Jewish studies. The Parables, Jewish Tradition and Christian Interpretation by Brad H. Young. Chris Armstrong's book, uh, Medieval Wis Wisdom for Modern Christians. I'd also recommend next week's guest's book that is almost out. In a couple of weeks, it'll be out. Dr. Jason M. Baxter's The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. And Brian Williams's book, which uh, I have to pull up the title here. He's recently released this book and I had him on the show, C.S. Lewis, Pre-Evangelism for a Post-Christian World, Why Narnia Might Be More Real Than You Think, also engages the subjects we'll talk about today. Highly recommend that book as well. Um, Tolkien's letters, I already told you, letter, Lewis's letters and essays, I'll, I'll quote them along the way. And Klein Ars, I think it's Klein R. Snodgrass. Let me get that uh, full name for you. 
Yes, Klein R. Snodgrass's book, Stories with Intent, a comprehensive guide to the parables of Jesus. If you've read my book, you know that most of these are in my bibliography at the back of my, uh, my book and are, are quoted um, frequently throughout the text. So with that out of the way, let's go back to the idea of the Lord of the Rings as a parabolic novel. What exactly does that mean? So here's what McFig says. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings created a secondary world complete in itself related to the primary world as fantasy is related to imagination, that is secondarily. Now that's interesting in and of itself, but what she's saying there is that Tolkien's created a convincing world that's complete and has meaning within itself as the form of the story itself. That is, you'll hear me say throughout my book that parables are in form what they wish to say in content. And I learned this from McFaig and Craiglinger and Snodgrass who often repeat this as do many others like John Dominic Crossan whose theology I'm not really aligned with, but I like his book on parables, also highly recommended. Um, so in addition to saying that, that the story has the meaning within the story form, the form of the story itself, it's complete in itself. It's also related to the primary world in, and, and speaks through our imagination before it appeals to reason. Uh, and so that's also an important insight. And I would also recommend the works of uh, Dr. Michael Ward there um, he's got an essay in a, in a book written, I think, uh, by some Catholic authors. I don't have the title off the top of my head. I didn't prepare. Um, but also in Planet Narnia, he talks about reason and imagination, both in that essay and also in his book, Planet Narnia. Um, I'm not going to be talking about that. I've uh, engaged the relationship of imagination and reason, I believe, in episode 13. Um, but needless to say, the imagination is the organ of meaning, Lewis says. It arranges, uh, takes the concrete data from reality and presents it in a meaningful way to reason, which then dis discerns whether it is true or false. That is whether it corresponds with reality. That's how these two faculties of our mind work in tandem simultaneously together. Uh, they cannot, they're indispensable. They cannot work independently. Um, so that's just a quick crash course, okay? The imagination is the faculty of the mind by which we picture things, some things that are not even real to our senses, fantastical things. Uh, but as Lewis says elsewhere in an essay, um, that the real world is always the bank that we uh, that the poet draws his checks from. Okay, that kind of speaks about what the imagination's role is, and that it's also tethered to reality always, uh, which is an important point. Okay, but this doesn't really get it. What does it mean that it's a parabolic novel? So. The first insight after our little crash course there on imagination and reason, the first insight there that's most important is that it has meaning in and of itself. The story and meaning are inextricably combined. Let's go on page 133, she says this, what is created, she's referring to Tolkien here, is a world, uh, Middle Earth, believable on its own terms so that the reader need exercise no suspension of disbelief, experience no conflict with science, no dislocation through the necessity of discovering what the characters and events quote unquote mean. They do not mean anything other than who they are and what happens for the story is, I believe, a parable. To be sure, in Tolkien's story, cracks on the realistic surface are far greater than say in parables in the primary world. Maybe here she's referring to Jesus's parables and even some of Jesus's parables don't have those uh, apparent cracks. They're very well hidden. But she says again and doubles down the story, Tolkien's story is itself parabolic. And here's what she means by parabolic. For the transcendent, that is a word that means beyond the physical, unfamiliar, 
here we might be thinking of God or a lot of uh, abstract forms, uh, but especially God, very important here. The transcendent unfamiliar, both good and evil, she refers to here also, operative in this tale works within the givens of this world. There's a juxtaposition of the transcendent and unfamiliar with the familiar givens of this world. Okay, and I've talked about this in my book, and that gets us into uh, here in a few minutes what the Greek word parabolain or the Greek words para and balain or the word parabole means, uh, but we'll come to that shortly. She distinguishes the parabolic novel apart from, this is interesting, we'll come back to allegory later. Uh, she distinguishes the parabolic novel and says that, no, it's not an allegory, agreeing with Tolkien, at least somewhat, as we'll see. She says the reason why they're not allegories is that the imagery in the story is largely quote unquote, unassigned. I've also quoted this in my book, but what this means is that there's, there's mysteriousness in the imagery and the assigning of meaning to what these images are pointing to. The fact that they're unassigned makes it more like a parable and less like an allegory. Okay, that's interesting. We'll unpack more about allegory later and what Tolkien said about it later. Let's keep going. Another way to put it, McFaig says, is to say that in order to see this tale, The Lord of the Rings, as parabolic, one must allow Tolkien's world to be the world, quote unquote. And as many have discovered, that is not hard to do. In fact, in the very opening of my introduction, that is precisely what I say. Why is it that we love The Lord of the Rings? We love it because it is a realistic story. It is not hard to see that. But then it also makes us question our sanity. Wait a second. This is a world with magical rings, dwarves, elves, dragons, hobbits, oh my how is that real? Okay. And this also touches on topics I've already talked about. I'm not really getting into the metaphysics of, uh, of, of how Tolkien's world is real today, although that's going to be alluded to. But needless to say that imaginative things can help us point to reality because it's always tethered to reality. That is that truth does not have to be literal in order to be factual. That is that truth can be non-literal. It can be imaginative or metaphorical or poetic and still be factual. It can still correspond to reality and therefore constitute truth. All right. Well, this sends us back to what a parable is. Okay, so that's what McFig says, Lord of the Rings is a parabolic novel. She kind of distinguished it over and against allegory. She tells us there's a juxtaposition of the transcendent unfamiliar and the concrete familiar. And our definition of parable also begs us to, uh, or invites us to rather, define what a metaphor is. For she and other authors I've cited our sources today, define a parable as an extended metaphor. On page 67 of McFig's book, she says this, the parable, a parable is an extended metaphor and as a genuine metaphor, it is not translatable into concepts. Here she means abstract concepts. To be sure it is shot through with open-endedness, with pregnant silences, with cracks opening into mystery. But parables remain profoundly impenetrable. Parables, uh, oh, she, sorry, she's talking now about uh, Kafka. She was quoting a, a Kafka story, so I have to skip over that part. But what she goes on to say, uh, that parables are themselves actu actually. That is that we have to take them at face value. We have to take them as stories. Parables are, she says, a figurative representation of an actual total meaning. They don't, quote unquote, stand for anything, but they are. So I've talked about this throughout my book, that the parable's form, the form of the parable is what it wishes to say in content. The form and the content 
our one unitive holistic delivery system. Okay, uh, that's very important. The meaning is not in a separate realm in a parable, something that can be pointed to. And in Myth Became Fact, C.S. Lewis, his essay, Myth Became Fact, he says this, that when we go looking for that kind of in a myth, we're not, look, we're not experiencing it as a myth anymore. We're, we're just abstracting things from it. We're taking abstract meaning out of it. In fact, uh, let's read precisely what Lewis said. I think that's important that we do. So I'm going to pull up God in the dock here. He says, of course not. You're not looking for abstract meaning at all when you're tasting the myth. If that was what you were doing, the myth would be uh, for you, no true myth, but a mere allegory. We'll come back to that too, because it brings up allegory again. You are not knowing, you were, but tasting. But what you were tasting turns out to be a universal principle. The moment we state this principle, this is the link to what McFaig is saying, we are admittedly back into the world of abstraction because a myth, according to Lewis, allows us to taste something that could only otherwise be understood as abstraction. So when the abstract is pulled down into the concrete and presented as a unitive form of communication, that is what a parable is. When abstract and concrete are embodied together, that is when the abstract is embodied within the concrete, it's one singular delivery system. That's when we start to understand what a parable really is. And that's what distinguishes it from an allegory. But how, if we look closer at what all that means, what I just said, abstract, concrete, being incarnated, all that stuff, that makes us have to look at metaphor because the thing that makes parable, uh, the how of how parable works, the form and content being linked, how that works has to do with what a metaphor is and not your grandmother's definition of metaphor, which we'll go ahead and mention here in a little bit. But what um, a lot of these scholars that have quoted are working with, a I think a better and more, more accurate and sensitive understanding, nuanced understanding of metaphor. And of course, as scholars will tell you, you know, this is, people are gonna disagree, but I'm gonna say, I think it's the more correct definition. More on metaphor in a second. So what is a parable? Okay, well, the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, translate the, the, the word from which we get the Greek word parabole. Okay, so we know that the word parabole is the Greek word. That's where we get our English word parable. But where does the Greek parabole come from? It comes from the Hebrew, mashal, okay, which uh, when the Greek uh, um, translators were, were translating the Hebrew into the Greek to make the Septuagint, they translated it from the Hebrew word mashal. I also talk about this in my book. There are 42 occurrences of this word in the Old Testament. So what is mashal? Well, mashal, um, if you look up, you know, kind of Strong's definition, uh, dictionary, biblical uh, dictionary, you'll have um, the, you know, basic meaning of mashal is um, a proverb, or it could mean an allegory, it could mean a metaphor, it could mean a riddle, it could mean a wise or dark saying, it can also mean a riddle, I might have already said that. It can also mean what we mean by parable. So there's a lot of words in here that might overlap. It's a very broad term, but it also has at its root um, or at its base an understanding of resemblance or imitation or representation. And if you look at the old root word behind mashal, uh, back in, you know, we go back even further into ancient Semitic cultures, um, you know, and this gets me out of my area of expertise, but if you look at what Brad Young argues and in his book, or if you look into, as I said, the strong definition, you'll see that the root word behind mashal um, is a word that means to rule, that mashal has a meaning of reigning like a king or a queen, to rule or to extend or have dominion. 
And so with this understanding of, it also means shadow, which really means kind of resemblance that, you know, the image is a shadow and an inexact representation of what the image is pointing to. Um, so there's, it's such a broad word, but I think all of that is very fascinating. Also the fact that resemblance is also related to the root word for Michal, uh, which meant to rule like a king's rule, to have dominion. I make this case in my book because others have made it like Brad Young. And I've even seen in Snodgrass's book that this kind of shows us that parables are perfect vehicles for proclaiming God is becoming king on earth as in heaven. They are monarchical stories in that sense that um, the shadow, Jesus, uh, is an you know, inexact representation of um, the, has a resemblance to God and, and somehow mysteriously is God. But we know he's not just an inexact representation in Christian theology, not a mere shadow. He is very God from God himself. And so we can, we can stretch this uh, connection a little too far. But what I'm trying to say is, if we understand the incarnation as a parable, as McFig elsewhere argues in her book, and as other scholars have argued, um, that the very incarnation himself, Jesus, is a parable, a mashal. It's interesting to see the um, overlapping of the, the root word for Michal, meaning to rule or to have dominion. Um, and so this root word behind the Hebrew Michal and Michal's uh, sort of typical dictionary definition as uh, resemblance or shadow or imitation. Um, and, and I think that's deeply uh, puzzling uh, and rewarding to think about. And so it kind of brings us to that paradox of what the incarnation is and how parables are a perfect vehicle for saying incarnation. Jesus spoke in parables and one third we're told by Kreglinger of the gospels um, are parables that Jesus clearly used parables as a his principal means of proclamation and teaching, she says, uh, and that might tell us why. Okay, so if we take parabole, the Greek word from Michal, carrying with all that we just learned, what can we learn from the Greek? The Greek word parabole is made up of two words. According to Kreglinger, she tells us very accurately, I might add, and also with some interesting new information I didn't include in my book, I alluded to it, but didn't go into it in this much depth. The preposition para in Greek changes its meaning according to the case of the noun that it governs. With a genitive, it means from the side of. With the dative, beside or in the presence of or near. This gets into uh, you know, noun declensions now, um, uh, which is interesting. Makes me think back to my Latin and uh, little Greek days that I did in graduate school and undergrad. <laughs> With the accusative, it means alongside of. Um, I'm thinking um, bo bimis bit. <laughs> you know, I'm like in my head, I'm conjugating Latin verbs now. Anyway, the noun bole on the other hand, means a throw or a stroke. So the words together, parabole, etymologically speaking, means to throw something alongside, remember that juxtaposition we talked about of the unfamiliar transcendent with the familiar or the concrete, uh, the ordinary, the mundane. It is indirect. It, it can also mean thrown from the side rather than directly. Therefore, parable is indirect communication. Ooh, that reminds me, I want to recommend one more book that's excellent, also a Wiffenstock author, so go, go Wiffenstock. It is the book Hide and Seek, The Sacred Art of Indirect Communication by Benson P. Fraser. It's also a book I'm drawing on today for today's episode. That's an excellent book that explores more of what it is meant by 
indirect communication. And here's what Fraser basically says, paraphrasing, indirect communication, because it's thrown from the side, it doesn't approach the information it wishes to communicate explicitly. It takes the long way. This is what Lewis meant when he was talking about sneaking past those watchful dragons, right? Of the rational mind, it going through the imagination is going indirectly. It also, by being indirect, it means that we're, we're speaking in a veiled or concealed kind of way, a mysterious way that's suggestive, not explicit. More implicit, we might say, rather than explicit. That is good for people who think they already know what something is or means and is a way of bringing down their guard. That's exactly what you know, Lewis meant when he was saying stripping, of it, stripping a story of its Sunday school uh, you know, sort of intimations and sneaking past the watchful dragons. Uh, you know, and I think elsewhere he says something like we want more stories with, uh, you know, by authors with their Christianity latent in the story. All of that, that's what he means. That's what Lewis is alluding to the parable and what Fraser is alluding to that parables are indirect communication. That's what that entails. It is not direct speech. It is indirect. It strikes from the side. Uh, it is not prosabole, but parabole. The etymology of this word gives away, gives way to an important dimension of parabolic speech. They confront us and Jesus confronts us indirectly. Think about Jesus's audience. Many of his audience members would have pe been people who were very learned and some unlearned, but even unlearned may have had an idea of what the Torah taught and what was you know, required of them. A lot of people that uh, we think of the rich young man, you know, um, or the scribes or Pharisees that challenged Jesus about the resurrection or about marriage and the five brothers, you know, all of these different stories, we think, well, Jesus knows he's talking to people who think they already know the answer. So direct speech, propositional arguments, not going to probably be as effective. So think about that, guys. That's really interesting, isn't it? Okay. So we find here now that the problem of parable is, is exactly what Tolkien's problem was with allegory. So here I'm reading again from um, uh, Klein Snodgrass, who's actually quoted by Kreglinger. Uh, and I think this is another essay that Snodgrass wrote. Kreglinger quotes him, not his book that I cited at the beginning, but something else he wrote. And here's what Snodgrass says. He says, how do we do justice to the language event character of the parables? Retain their force and yet understand the theology they express without reducing them to pious or not so pious moralism. The parables have an unquestionable depth. How can we legitimately appreciate their field of meaning within the intent of Jesus without turning them into polyvalent modeling clay? I love that. Uh, he's trying to strike a balance, right? There, there's a theological underpinning. There is a, a message. There is something we're meant to look through the story to see. Um, but he's also saying that you don't really look through it. You, you look into it and you see it that way. And we, you know, this gets to what Tolkien kind of meant uh, when he says in some of his letters, he says that, you know, any attempt to explain fairy story or myth, he says, requires allegorical language. And so we do this and we have to do this carefully because we don't want to turn something into an allegory that wasn't designed as an allegory. And we're going to keep coming back to the fact that parables are not the kind of allegory with express explicit allegorical mode that Tolkien disliked. And so we want to distinguish them from that kind of allegory and therefore to say simply that they're not allegory in that sense of, of allegory, they're maybe a different kind of allegory. We'll come back to that. Um, they don't do this. They, they don't shove it underneath your nose as uh, last week's guest, uh, Chris Wiley said about Tom Bombadil and allegory. So anyway, that's, that's important. Tolkien was concerned that this would happen with his book, I fear. 
that it would turn into polyvalent modeling clay. But at the same time, he expresses in his letters, yet he was disappointed that some people found no trace of God or religion in it. He says, I've deliberately created a tale out of certain religious ideas. He told, uh, I think, Robert Murray, who we'll also come back to later. And he elsewhere says that, you know, uh, I was hoping to, you know, embody certain religious ideas in unfamiliar embodiments, he says in another letter, uh, you know, under a guise. So it's clear Tolkien wanted you to walk away with certain religious, theological, uh, pious points, but not to, you know, feel that you've plumbed their, their, their full depths, okay? And that's, that's a very important, I think, a very important point. And that brings me back to McFaig. It just reminded me of something she says. Okay, she says, a parable is an extended metaphor. A parable is not an allegory or a type of allegory that we'll see Tolkien dislike, where the meaning is extrinsic to the story, nor is it an example story where, as in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the total meaning is within the story. Rather, there seems to be a balance. As an extended metaphor, the meaning is found only within the story itself. We have to approach it. We have to feel and experience the content in the form itself, but it is not exhausted by that story. That is, it has endless applicability. That's what else Tolkien said. And that's what I think it's a perfect tie into that in the forward to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings. I hope some of you out there can see how nuanced this is. Why, what I said at the beginning about how we can't just quote that I cordially dislike allegory and all of its manifestations and be done with it in the same place from the forward to the second edition of Lord of the Rings. We can't do that anymore. It's much deeper than we thought. Um, and we'll find towards the end of today's episode that Tolkien you know, didn't dislike all allegory. Now we need to, uh, since we've kind of defined parable from various ways and talked about the history of parable and the language, we need to come now to what McFaig just said about parables as extended metaphors or as Crossan puts it in his book, The Power of Parable Metaphorical Narratives. What does it mean that parables are extended metaphors and what is a metaphor? Okay, so um, parables are extended metaphors, meaning that unlike with allegories where meaning is extrinsic to the story we read just a moment ago, meaning is found only within the story itself, although it is not exhausted by that story. We also tied that into something Tolkien uh, alluded to in letter 131, that he dislikes one kind of allegory, the conscious and intentional kind, yet any attempt to explain the purport or, of myth or fairy tale must use allegorical language. Right? We, we have to look, we feel that we can and almost should look beyond the story, but meaning can't be, the meaning is found nevertheless within the story itself. Uh, and so, but it's one that keeps having us come back, okay? Again, more on allegory later. We've started to kind of tie in how this all relates to that, but uh, we'll get to it. I promise I'll make it very clear. So again, the big question is how a parable is working the way we've been saying it's working. How does new insight occur within a parable? Um, and, and that brings us now to metaphor, okay? Metaphor comes from two Greek words, meta and ferain, meaning to bear uh, or ferry over like a, like a ferry on a river, to carry over, to transfer, or as John Crossan says, I, I like this, to speak as, right? We, we, we humans are inescapably in our language. All language is metaphorical. Uh, you know, everything kind of suggests uh, that meaning lay elsewhere, right? We're always carrying over uh, from one, meaning from one thing to another. And we always have to speak of, of one thing as another, it seems that language itself is inex, uh, inextricably, um, no, that's not the word I meant, I'm sorry. It's uh, inescapably 
metaphorical. Language is inescapably metaphorical. That's the point. And uh, it's not your grandmother's definition of metaphor that it's just one way of saying something that could be said literally. Okay, that's not, that's Aristotle's kind of working definition and other uh, biblical scholars like Juliker, uh, Adolf Juliker, who, who uh, I may be butchering his name, I apologize, uh, who built on Aristotle's definition of meta metaphor. That's not what we mean by metaphor. Um, so metaphor has this quality of both expressing and communicating at the same time. It shows and it tells simultaneously. Or stated differently, metaphor is the enfleshment, Brian Godawa says in one of his books, of proposition. Or as Lewis says in um, his book on the Psalms, uh, Reflections on the Psalms, poetry is a little incarnation. Metaphor is, in a, you know, of course, inseparable from uh, poetry. Or we might say that metaphor allows us to taste and experience and, or to taste or experience and know at the same time. That's what he says in Myth Became Fact. Or to experience as concrete what would otherwise only be understood as an abstraction. We know it's also indirect. Metaphors are indirect. They're an indirect kind of speech because parables are indirect speech and parables are extended metaphors. So we see how all that works out. That is, they don't work through explicit statements about the underlying subject matter. It's also, uh, McFig says, imagistic language. That is, it's image driven. The wrong definition of metaphor, what metaphor is not, and I talk about this in my book, is that it is a substitutionary theory of metaphor. It assumes that metaphor is just another way of saying what could be said literally. The thing said, however, is inexpressible apart from how it is said. Metaphors can't be stated in non-metaphorical language without great loss and reduction in meaning. That's also what Lewis meant when he was talking about a good myth and myth became fact. And one gets also the sense that we would make this even more complicated, but I almost fear that I must in my new book by also saying that Lewis's working definition of a good myth, which he alludes to it several times uh, in various places, is almost synonymous with parable. Hmm. Uh, especially once we understand what a metaphor is and how a parable is an extended metaphor and then how Lewis describes myth over and against allegory. And when you connect the dots, it seems like myth the way that Lewis understood it had a connection to parable, but we're gonna to return to that another time. So stay tuned. Uh, okay, so metaphor creates, here's another way of uh, kind of understanding metaphor. We know what it's not now. It's an interanimation between two thoughts. So I'm gonna give you some terms here. A metaphor works this way. There's something called the tenor, which is the underlying subject matter. Lewis even uses uh, the, um, the term fright, right? Like a fright. Um, freight, excuse me, like a, something that is being packaged and carried somewhere, right? So there's the tenor, that's the underlying uh, uh, freight or a subject matter of the metaphor and the vehicle, the image, the metaphor itself that presents it. Okay, so another way to look at this is that metaphor presents the abstract and the garb of something concrete, that is, but it's embodied in the concrete and it's, it's tasted only through experiencing the concrete, which is why also typology and biblical studies is so important because God really prefers to speak through images or what the Greek word typos, figure or image means. So we could also connect types to metaphors that types are metaphorical and uh, you know, metaphors are, are types. Um, that is, um, there's a connection even there with that Greek word typos, right? So God loves types. He loves to put types of himself everywhere in creation. God seems to love to speak imaginatively to us and reveal himself imaginatively He's imagistic. Metaphors are imagistic. Metaphors are typological, right? And vice versa. Um, and so 
you know, here's an example of how this might work, okay? I think this is a quote from Ovid. I was trying to track it down. Here's a line from Ovid, I think Metamorphoses. A stubborn and unconquerable flame creeps in his veins and drinks the streams of life. It's also cited in Kreglinger's book. A stubborn and unconquerable flame creeps in his veins and drinks the streams of life. So here's what Kreglinger's commentary is. Here the underlying subject matter or tenor is the idea of a fever from which someone is suffering. That's the freight, right? The, uh, the vehicle for it is the description of the flame. The vehicle is the description of the flame. The fever is never mentioned in the description showing that the interaction is not between words, but thoughts. So this interanimation or interaction between the two ideas, vehicle and tenor adds to our own understanding of one subject matter. It is important to notice that the metaphor has only one subject in this case, which is the fever and the vehicle is not explicit. It's suggestive, it's implicit of the subject matter. The relationship between them must not be reduced to a mere comparison, even though there are similar you know, elements present, comparative elements present. And she says furthermore, that in order for a metaphor, a good metaphor that is to work, not that substitutionary kind, there must be a certain amount of similarity and dissimilarity between the vehicle and the tenor. There must be a certain amount of dissimilarity between the things being compared so they don't collapse into mere uh, simile, right? Or, or mere comparison. The greater the dissimilarity between the two, the greater the shock of the surprise that we find within the parable. So if parables are metaphorical or metaphorical narratives, and the metaphorical language within the parables uh, is suggestive and deeply implicit. And that means that there's gonna be a great amount of dissimilarity between things that are being compared. Then the more we're going to learn and the more depth, the more meaning we are going to be able to find in such a story. And now you can start to understand why the Lord of the Rings is, or could be rightly understood, be understood as a parabolic novel. That's very important. So the ultimate definition, and I quote Craiglinger in my book as this, that of metaphor is that it is better, metaphor is better described or defined as speaking about one thing in terms that are seen to be suggestive of another. Now let's talk about why metaphor, or even we might say types, are perfect for God talk, right? And then this will bring us back to understanding why Jesus spoke in parables. And now I hope you'll be able to better understand, almost like a guide to my book this episode, right? <laughs> it kind of seems at least to the, the chapter, chapter one of my book, um, you'll see why Jesus spoke in parables, why parables are perfect vehicles for speaking about God. And here I'm going to bring in not, uh, not Dylan McDermott, but Gerald R. McDermott's book, Everyday Glory. So why is metaphor or type, type, types, why are types or metaphors perfect for God talk? Because types communicate, he says, McDermott says, depth in ways that propositions cannot. The archetype, which let me pause here from McDermott's argument, there's only one great archetype in nature that is in reality, and that's Jesus himself. That's God, the Godhead. And the types that are all in, that are scattered all in creation are types of that great archetype in varying degrees, okay? Now, usually we speak of types and antitypes. So type is the thing that prefigures and suggests the antitype or points to, the in, points to and participates in the antitype. The antitype is the thing the type prefigures. But here we want to substitute antitype, or we could substitute antitype for archetype with a capital R. I'm sorry, capital A. So the archetype, Jesus, McDermott says, cannot be communicated. That's strong words there. Fully, except through types. Jesus, God, cannot be understood except through, fully understood, 
except through types, except through metaphor. Because as you'll see here, that McDermott's understanding of type is our understanding we've been discussing about the, suggest, the suggestiveness of metaphor. For this reason, he goes on to say the type and the antitype or the archetype cannot be separated, right? We cannot allegorize them. We cannot say that it's extrinsic to the form of the story itself or the image or the moving series of images, the story itself. The first is fulfilled by the other, he says, and the second has no fullness without the first, end quote. So here we, I hope we can see that types, which I know is another term to bring in here, but for you Bible nerds out there and systematic theologians, people who do form criticism, maybe you'll understand, uh, you know, that's an important term. Typology is a way of interpreting scripture. Okay. Types are intrinsically metaphorical. God scattered types of himself everywhere in creation, which is why there's great shock, for example, that when Jesus in the gospel of John is comparing himself to bread or vines or water or light, he's pointing to um, himself. Uh, and yet he's also saying that these things are me. They point to and participate in me. And we see this great dissimilarity between bread and vine and God. I mean, what could be more strange there than the union of this great, unfamiliar, invisible being and something so daily tangible and concrete to us. So there's this great amount of dissimilarity. And yet Jesus is saying, don't, not so fast. There's similarity more than you think. So um, this is what Edward Pusey also calls, he's a theologian, uh, the sacramental union. We're going to come to sacramentalism in a second. I've alluded to this in episode 13 when we talked about Tolkien's sacramental view or perspective of reality. This is even a, a book I recently found. Somebody has written about this as well, um, said very different things than I've said, doesn't come to the same conclusions that I do, but uh, does see that Tolkien had a sacramental vision. I just don't think quite explored in, in this sort of level of depth that I'm doing, but nevertheless, it's a, uh, it's a great book. Let me tell you the title of it. Um, and it has sacramental vision in it. Tolkien's Sacramental Vision. I didn't even realize this book existed until quite recently. And it was uh, after I had recorded that episode by Craig Bernthal, Discerning the Holy in Middle-Earth. Again, similar to, uh, but also very different, my own book. So highly recommend that book as well. Anyway, coming back to this idea of the sacramental union and the union of the type and the archetype, Here's what uh, McDermott also says. He says, the antitype or archetype that Christ is in his kingdom is joined to the type by the latter's participation in the first, the type's participation in the archetype. The two are joined in being, even if at different levels or to different degrees, okay? And not every type reflects God, uh, you know, not all, and for, of course, there are examples of things that don't reflect God um, that, you know, would go into what Christians believe, for example, doctrinally. But anyway, um, for another episode, we could cover that. What I want to focus on now are the things that do. And what we might say here is um, that the higher, the archetype is participating in the lower. We could really look at it. I think that's the proper way to look at it. But we can also discern that something higher and deeper and heavier, to use Lewis's words, uh, about the spiritual, which we tend to think is lighter and more transparent. But Lewis says, no, we should think of the invisible as heavier, the spiritual as weightier that we can also perceive the higher uh, behind and above the lower. Um, but I think the proper sacramentalistic way of interpreting this is that the archetype participates in the type, uh, but there is a union, there's a relationship between the two. They co-inhere, to use Hans Borsma's language. 
So that brings us to what is sacramentalism. And uh, we've kind of tied up what, how, how to understand metaphor. We understand how parables are extended metaphors. We've started to hear glimpses at how this is different from allegory, but we're not there yet. What is sacramentalism and how are parables? And I want to make this case as I did in my book, I hinted at it, but this is some of the new stuff that I'm working on. And I didn't get a chance to put this into my first book, but I do at some point, I want to find out where in my book, call parables sacramental story. I say in the introduction or even the preface that um, supposals even more on that in my next book, um, as I'll be talking about C.S. Lewis, parables make us look at reality sacramentally again. Um, but I also talk about the sacramental union in the introduction uh, between the type and the archetype. So there's a little bit of typology in my book. So I do point to this. I just don't explore it as much as I'm doing it right now. Uh, but there is a sort of sacramental quality to parables I hint at. Parables are the perfect example of the sacramental unity, I say, on page 22 of my introduction. So there you go. So what does that mean? What is sacramentalism? Is a theological point of view and a linked set of beliefs, according to Chris Armstrong and Brian Williams, that sees the following three points. Um, transcendent, the transcendent spiritual reality manifests itself somehow in, in and through the created material reality that God has made. That all creation is in some sense, on the other hand, a reflection of the creator and this higher reality. But note there that that first point is that we can see the higher and the lower. And thus that three, God is not removed, utterly removed from the world. He's present in and through the world. And uh, he says, importantly, for those that understand that idea out there of the sacred secular or fact value split that Kant, Immanuel Kant, contributed so much to in his philosophical systems, um, a correlative of these sacramental beliefs, Armstrong says, is that religion is not separate or compartmentalized from the rest of life, from page 144 of Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians by Chris Armstrong. Okay, so there's what sacramentalism is. So the, the big idea here is that God is present through the world and that the higher, the archetype, God, the, uh, the creator is present in the lower, in the types, the images. Um, here's what uh, Hans Borsma says. And he quotes C.S. Lewis's essay called Transposition. In fact, uh, as a matter of fact, let me read from that essay by Lewis. Here's what Lewis says. This is a way we can understand the difference even later between allegorical speech and metaphorical speech. You know, allegory, we can imagine two separate circles labeled X and Y with an arrow between them. This is what Boersma's um, sketch in his book really uh, looks like is that you know, one thing points extrinsically to something else outside itself. There's no coherence. They don't overlap. Um, but sacramentalism understands it more like a Venn diagram where X and Y point to, X points to Y, but Y also participates in X. And there's a relationship and overlapping. So in C.S. Lewis's essay, Transposition, you might say that he presents sacramentalism thusly. He says, by contrast, when we look at how a picture a painting represents the visible world. We find a rather different kind of relationship. Lewis explains that pictures are part of the visible world themselves and represented only by being a part of it. Lewis says their visibility has the same source as its. The suns and lamps in pictures seem to shine only because of real suns or lamps shine on them. This made me think of the silver chair. I'm going to be talking about it in a Bible men's group next week. Uh, that's important because that story from chapter 12, I think it is, of the silver chair also is a, can be understood as a sacramental uh, illustrate, or I should say an illustration of sacramentalism. 
Anyway, the sun and lamps in pictures seem to shine only because real suns or lamps shine on them. That is, they seem to shine a great deal because they really shine a little in reflecting their archetypes. The higher is present in the lower. The suns and lamps in the pictures shine because they reflect the things from which they derive their ontological sort of essence. The sunlight in a picture is therefore not related to real sunlight simply as written words are to spoken. Okay, it's not X pointing to Y. It is a sign, but it's also, so it's not just pointing to the signified, but it's also something more than a sign because in it, in the sign, the thing signified is also really in a certain mode present. If I had to name the relation, I should call it not symbolical, but sacramental. There you have it, folks. So Borsma, he puts it this way. Um, it seems to me, he says, that the shape of the cosmic tapestry of reality itself is one in which earthly signs and heavenly realities are intimately woven together, so much so that we cannot have the heavenly, uh, the earthly without the heavenly or the former without the latter. And so for now, it is enough to observe that the reason for the you know, inherent or intrinsic mysterious character of the world on the understanding of the Christian great tradition, at least, is that it participates in some greater reality from which it derives its being and its value, okay? And now you can also go back to thinking of those two diagrams that, uh, that I, I, I just um, kind of verbally illustrated. And uh, Borsma gives a great example in his book of how the, the Venn diagram and sacramental diagram that is uh, should be understood versus or over and against the symbolic or the, we might even say the purely allegorical X pointing to Y uh, diagram. Uh, I'm not gonna read it, but he uses the example of a road sign with a silhouette of a deer. Um, and uh, I really highly recommend that you check out his book. In the very beginning of the book, he talks about this. Uh, and I would argue that that X pointing to Y is that that that's a conscious and intentional sort of allegorical story that does that, right? It, meaning is found outside and only outside. It points away from itself. The story doesn't matter. It's a flimsy uh, cutout, right? It can push it over. There's no participation. There's no mystery. There's no holistic unity. And there's no incarnational quality where the, the uh, proposition is becoming embodied and the, the abstract is being embodied in the image or the concrete thing. Uh, there's none of that. So allegory, as we'll get to, kind of does away with all the mystery. It's transparent in a way that is just very obnoxious often, often. Okay, we'll get to that. So then again, I say, why is metaphor and therefore extended metaphorical narratives, parables, perfect for speaking about God? Here are some other insights. Quote from several quotes from Craig Linger's book, Storied Revelations. Metaphorical language is the inevitable way to speak about God uh, as metaphors are suggestive in nature, not seeking to confine the tenor to the meaning of the vehicle. Suggestive, it's not complete, it's not comprehensive. That goes back to what McFaig was saying earlier too. So as we're beginning to see here how this is distinguished from uh, the kind of allegory Tolkien disliked, if you know anything about that. And we're also hopefully seeing that um, parables are intrinsically uh, and uh, very, very thoroughly metaphorical narratives and that metaphors are not just these substitutionary uh, ways of communicating. Um, I talk about this in my book too, that metaphor, how metaphorical language works uh, versus allegorical language, which we're about to uh, finish with here. But metaphors, she also says, do not seek to capture the full meaning of the underlying subject matter, but given their suggestive nature, highlight only certain aspects while hiding other aspects. That's right there. That's the very definition I've seen in so many biblical books 
in my bibliography for my first book about what a parable is. Um, I, I can't think of every book off the top of my head, but I know some of the ones I cited for the show today define parables that reveal and conceal. I think Benson Fraser in his book about uh, indirect communication does that too. So that right there tells us the, the link between metaphor and par parable is very important. And that these words, which we probably thought were all three ways of saying the same thing, allegory, metaphor, parable, are, are certainly not. So what else can we say here? I'm looking a couple other notes. Um, the reason Craig Lunger says we can take images from the visible world and use them metaphorically is because there exists a natural correspondence. This speaks to the sacramental quality of metaphor or types. There's a natural correspondence between the physical world and the inner world of the person, but also we might say the, um, the, the higher archetypal world, the transcendent dimension, the heavenly dimension that overlaps and interlocks with our own. That's what Christian theology teaches. Heaven is not some completely separate uh, as if it were some alien world. It is true capital R reality. It is the deeper, more, the heavier, the more substantial reality. Um, and it is the poets, or we might say the parablers task to discover the sacramental correspondences and suggestive, we might say suggestive correspondences within a parable. Uh, and to see life ultimately the way God sees it, she says. Very interesting. Um, you know, one thing I'm not touching on in this episode is how this all relates to literal language, but suffice to say that uh, the word literal is, is fraught with a lot of problems. You know, we, we tend to think of metaphor as opposite and completely mutually exclusive from literal language. But if you read a book like Frodo's Journey by Joseph Pierce, where he talks he almost speaks in that book about uh, allegorical language as if he meant to say metaphorical. And, and now that I've read so many other scholars, I wonder if sometimes a lot of us, when trying to say metaphorical language, we end up saying allegorical and, and causing even more confusion. And I'm not certainly not saying that Joseph Pierce did that, but that it, it could be because sometimes we use these words and confusing ways where we say one and we mean the other. And, and this is part of why I've recorded this episode and giving you so many sources to look at yourself to kind of set the record straight so we can have these terms in fixed, understandable categories as any good philosopher defines their terms. Um, in any event, uh, you know, th this idea that uh, literal language exists somehow uh, as mutually exclusive from metaphorical language or apart from metaphorical language is, is really not, it's fallacious, it's not true, um, you know, or that uh, literal language is the you know, operative way to say things and it doesn't resort to metaphor, but often these scholars are telling us that they contain dead metaphors. Uh, I think you know, maybe even like one example, like I have no stomach for that, uh, something like that. I think uh, Owen Barfield even discusses that in Poetic Diction if I'm, I've just started reading Barfield. But anyway, um, I'm not a Barfield guy. I have a guest coming on the show who is though in the next few months, so look for that. Uh, you know, they're, Literal language is not supreme. It, it, it doesn't avoid metaphor. And I, again, I don't want to get into this, but the idea that uh, literal language is the only way of expressing facts, you know, or, or we might say literal language is the only kind of true language and truth is always about something. Truth is about reality, right? And so literal language is the only way of telling the truth about the world. It's just not true, uh, ironically. So um, yeah, they are not as different as we thought. And uh, by the way, you know, I will say this, and I've learned this from a great many uh, books on how to read the Bible, 
uh, from N.T. Wright uh, to, to others. Um, you know, the, uh, even uh, Rebecca McLaughlin's got a great book called Confronting Christianity. Got to keep trying to, um, I've tried to invite her on the show a couple times on Twitter. It's hard to get get uh, the attention of some people. I'm trying to uh, to reach out to several guests for this year, and I'm trying to find out other ways to do that. But she's um, she's a great author. She's got a book called Confronting Christianity, and, and she talks about this, that, um, you know, there is true while non-literal uh, and literal sort of speech, uh, which is kind of getting into what we're talking about, right? Metaphors are true while non-literal. Um, they're not literal speech. And to take a metaphor literally would mean to accept it as a metaphor, that that is the meaning. It, it is, uh, it's not, well, metaphor is a way of saying something literal, no, or saying something else. Metaphor is the message. It, you just take it at face value and take it to take a metaphor literally would not mean to uh, state it in a different way, but to interpret it as such, as a metaphor. So um, when, when asked, you know, do you read the Bible literally? You might say, as some scholars have said, I can't remember who said this, but you might read it literarily and that you might interpret it literally when the Bible tells you to. Uh, and when it doesn't, you take to take it literally would mean to accept it if it's a metaphor as, as metaphor. So that's that's food for thought. Uh, okay, so now we get to towards the end of the show here. I know this is a long episode, guys, but it's, it's I think it's going to be worth your while. I hope you've been taking notes. Um, we have the sort of now conversation about allegory and how metaphorical narratives such as parables relates to that. And then how all this kind of gets into Tolkien. All right. So this is where uh, we get into the main subject. One really has to be careful with classifications. And I have to say from the outset, I say this in my book as many others have in their books, classifications are not perfect. Um, and the reason I ended up settling on allegory, speaking about a um, classification of allegories rather than say choosing, let's speak of different kinds of parables as John Crossan does, you know, and one kind of parable we might say is what, what some understand as allegory, that, you know, allegory is a subset of, par of, of a type of parable, is that we could really say it either way. And Klein Snodgrass's book, Stories with Intent, really makes this clear, but so does Kreglinger. Um, you know, it's, these are not perfect classifications, they're ours. Uh, I think the ancients understood this more intimately and, and uh, intuitively. And so to say you know, that we can completely say that parables and allegories are completely separate is, is actually wrong. We can't say that Snodgrass, who's a biblical scholar says that. What we should, and try, uh, inst should instead try to do is say that there's a difference between allegorical language and metaphorical language and we have to pick a classification, whether we want to call these types of stories allegories or parables, it would ultimately result in the same thing. What we would ultimately have to do is underneath this distinction or this classification, we'd have to see how the language is being used and what one kind of language means versus another. And that's what I, uh, I just presented, like my whole chapter one right there in a nutshell for my book. Um, there's also, you know, the issue of not only allegorical composition, that is allegory as a genre, but allegor allegoresis, which I mentioned in my book, that's allegorical interpretation or turning into allegory what was not authorially intended as allegory. And the two of those kind of became one in certain medieval texts. Um, and I, you know, I'm not going to get into that, but sometimes these two can kind of merge. And, you know, a person's allegorical interpretation of something can become an allegorical composition. And I think that's what Tolkien feared. Um, and again, ultimately, it was the way language was being used 
to point us outside of the story as if the meaning was not located in the story. And I think that's ultimately what bothered Tolkien. And I think it bothered him ultimately even more so because that was not what Jesus was doing. And Jesus was, was doing it the parabolic way, the metaphorical way. And that's what I think it comes down to. And I think one of Tolkien's good friends and confidants gathered that and wrote an essay called Tolkien and the Art of the Parable that expressed exactly that. All right. So um, yes, these terms can become conflated and uh, you know, Adolf Juliker's uh, popular definition of allegory since antiquity uh, was to see allegory as extended metaphor. So there you go, that's confusing. There you see virtually no difference between parable and allegory. And, and I think maybe in a sense, that's partially correct is that again, the general category or genre isn't as important as the kind of the way that the language is used within the genre. So here, uh, Ulicker may be kind of right, partially that, you know, instead of saying parables are extended metaphors, allegories are, uh, but then we have to distinguish between different types of those stories and the way that, um, you know, we might say one is a better type than another because of the way the language is used. So again, that's what Snodgrass, that's why I love about his book. I'm going to read a quote from it in a second where he says, you know, we've spilled so much ink over this. That's not the main issue. We don't need to save Jesus from allegory. And I would say we don't need to save Tolkien from it. We need to, uh, to save ourselves from it. I might even say something like that in my book, actually. Um, and, and I think it's absolutely true. We, we have to embrace that there's going to be a certain slipperiness to some of the classifications that we do. Uh, but focus on the more the reason as to why Tolkien may not have liked the way certain kinds of language was being used in the story and what that would ultimately do to the, the integrity of the story is being the chief issue. And I think that's really what Tolkien scholars care about if I hear them correctly. Okay, so um, in my book, I allude to this too. This is not anything new here, but uh, Kreglinger makes a very important distinction for us that when we talk about allegory, this word can just be used in so many different ways. There's allegory as a genre, as a classification, right, or composition, where the predominant modus operandi, she says, is, is that of uh, where we have a very strict story where a thoroughgoing development of the allegorical mode within that type of allegory, and see how that already becomes kind of redundant. The allegorical mode dominates in the story, therefore we would call it an allegory. But what that means is that the author is so anxious to make their own points that it doesn't really have any center. The story just becomes a pushover. This means that this is what Tolkien scholars fear, right? Is that we can just say Aragorn is Jesus. And so is Gandalf. And so is Frodo. And really, they don't really have any meaning. It's just, you know, that's what it is. And Lembus bread is the sacrament, the Eucharist, and we're done. Now, of course, we all fear that. Um, I hope I didn't do that in my book. I certainly tried very hard not to. While at the same time, as we learn from McFaig, is that you know, the story doesn't exhaust the meaning. So we have to kind of look outside and say that there's going to be suggestions of things, but that doesn't mean that we've exhausted all of those suggestions. And that's why it's metaphorical, right? So I think, again, there you see that uh, that's what really bothered Tolkien already is that allegorical way of using language or the allegorical mode, which is really what he disliked, not necessarily allegory as a composition, okay? And even Tolkien says somewhere, I think it might have been in his introduction to Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, but the presence of allegorical mode or languaging in a story doesn't make it a whole allegory. But if every element in the story adds up to being allegorical, then the whole thing might be called a naive or conscious and intentional or crude allegory. Okay, which obviously Tolkien didn't want. But again, I think his concern was chiefly 
the allegorical mode or device. That's when allegory is not the primary mode of the story, but it's part of another genre. And here is where kind of my research picked up on. This is what I think Tolkien had a problem with. Not the fact that we could, sure, we could technically call the Lord of the Rings an allegory. And as you'll see, Tolkien did, but it's not that kind of allegory. And what was meant by that is that it's not dominated by this mode. It's just, it's not the primary mode of the story. It, it's, it's simply there somewhat. And as we'll see, there's actually a benefit. And one of my interviews I did on my book, I was asked about this. But there, there is a, there is a good. I think it was when uh, I was on Joel Sedicase's um, ThinkPod, as, as it was called at the time. But I, I think he asked me about this: Is there ever a time, or somebody else might have, when allegorical mode is is useful? Is it called for? And I would say yes, and I think Tolkien would agree. Uh, so the most basic definition, most vanilla definition of allegory, is that it says one thing and means another. Oxford English Dictionary describes it as a description of a subject under the guise of some other subject. That's what the Greek allegoria means, to speak of one thing as something else. And, and then it's like, well, isn't that the substitutionary definition of metaphor? And you guys can see why it's so important to define your terms. And so I would say there's even, that's a very technical point, but maybe the Oxford English Dictionary's definition of allegory is the Aristotelian definition, the substitutionary definition of metaphor that we were trying to desperately to get away from. And so you can see there's great confusion here. Okay. Um, and then we come back to the central point. We need to distinguish between the whole composition or the and the presence of the type of mode in the composition. And as I wanna argue, and as I argued in my book, the presence of the metaphorical mode is what dominates the parable. And yes, allegorical mode may be present there, but that doesn't make it a conscious and intentional allegory that Tolkien feared. Um, and that there may even be a use for some of that allegorical mode, okay? And that that was his concern. If it ever became so that the story became swallowed up by the allegorical mode, then it would become a conscious and intentional allegory. Uh, and and the, therefore the type of allegory in a typology of, of allegories that he did not like, but not all allegories as we'll see. He didn't ever say he disliked all allegories. If you just take one quote, Yes, that's, that, that's absolutely going to be your conclusion. But if you look at what else he said, and also what Tolkien scholars and biblical scholars and all the folks I've quoted today have said, it's not that simple. Okay, and once I feel like this is out of the way, people can really better understand, you know, how does the Lord of the Rings work on us? And what's so powerful about that is that brings us back to metaphor and type and sacramentalism and, and, and to the greater more important message of how Tolkien was trying to incarnate his worldview, his Christian worldview, in a way that matched the masters and the, the art of the parable of Jesus himself, which is really what we want to come back to. Okay, so um, Kreglinger also says, uh, you know, in an allegory, the message is usually encoded and we have to decode it. A lot of people have said this about allegory. Um, Allegory avoids confusion and opposition. I would agree with that. You think of Bunyan's you know, Pilgrim's Progress, that's always often cited. And I think it, incorrectly, um, C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, that's one of the things I'm trying to dislodge from popular imagination in my next book, um, that, that that's not the case, is that we've, we've misunderstood. And this, this episode in my research that I've been writing about is gonna, is gonna help a great deal, I think, overturn that understanding. And no longer should we cite Lewis as someone and this is actually where I would disagree with McFaig because she picks on Lewis as well. Um, I, I think we have to get away from seeing Lewis a, as a 
a conscious writer, of, uh, I'm sorry, a writer of conscious allegories that avoid confusion and opposition that are just pushover stories that we can see right through. Uh, anyway, uh, so allegory works on the basis of convention, she says. The uh, inner animation relationship between vehicle and tenor is clear, direct, and without tension. We don't see that on the Lord of the Rings very often. Once in a while, you, there's little cracks. In our last week's episode with Chris Wiley, we were talking about some of those cracks with the story and character of Tom Bombadil. Okay, they're, they're, they're there, but they're never so explicit. And, and as soon as you think you've, you've got it, like any good parable, you realize, no, that's not it. I haven't exhausted the meaning, right? And that goes back to McFig's understanding about uh, the meaning being in the story, but also not exhausted by the story. Finally, I want to say that the presence, and I've said this already, the, the presence of the allegorical mode in, in a genre, e even if we say the presence of the allegorical mode in an allegory doesn't make uh, you know, a, a conscious and intentional. Now, it could, that is, so here we might go back to my central argument. Basically what I was saying in my book, and I've visualized it thusly in many of my interviews, although I don't think I use this illustration in my book, to explain my book, this is what I kind of am getting at. If you imagine a spectrum, there's probably a better image to use here, but uh, if you imagine a classification or, or a group of um, either allegories or parables, right? We have different kinds of this, whatever type of story we wanna call it, that fall underneath that general category. Now, before I start talking about that, I wanna again specify that the presence of the allegorical mode does not make the story necessarily a dominant, naive, crude, conscious allegory. Um, if it's ultimately clear, straightforward, works on convention, uh, and is overwhelmingly shoving the meaning underneath our noses, and where it's exhausted by the story, and you know we can see it's just pointing us to something outside, and the story's done with, we can toss it away like a peanut shell. Then, then yeah, that's a conscious allegory. But if not, if the presence of the allegorical mode is in there, it does serve to ground the story in a world of familiarity to the reader, Craiglinger says, and thereby provides a platform from which to explore unknown regions. That gets us into fairy and what Tolkien wrote on, on fairy stories is that the presence, I say in my book, of the allegorical mode, although it doesn't dominate, means that we will be lulled into a very familiar place. And yet the presence of metaphor will generate and expand new meanings. And since that mode dominates, that's what makes it a parabolic novel and not a conscious and intentional allegory. Okay, uh, we might also summarize lastly that allegories help us remember. We might say conscious allegories help us remember while uh, real true parables or parabolic novels help to advance, that is metaphorical narratives, help us to advance understanding of the subject matter. Um, and I think on that, uh, let me qu quote Snodgrass. I told you uh, this quote was very edifying to me. He says, tremendous effort has been expended trying to distinguish parable and allegory, but in the end, we must admit that the effort is a complete failure despite the gallons of ink expended. Boy, is that ever true as we come to the end of today's episode. Um, he says, Jesus does not need to be saved from allegory. Parables are allegorical. That, that is, they contain the allegorical mode, some more so than others. Parables and allegories both refer outside themselves uh, but a good parable, which is dominated by that metaphorical mode, it's the story doesn't exhaust it, right? And that th there's a balance. So I want to finish now with what Tolkien said, and uh, and then also making once again coming back to our our first point, a case that Tolkien had a sacramental vision of reality, a sacramental worldview, 
has defined by Borsma, Bernthal, and others, uh, and that his parables were modeled on the art of the parable, uh, on Jesus himself and Jesus's parables, and that parables are, yes, are extended metaphors, they're metaphorical stories, they're typological stories, you might say, or you might say that all means that they're sacramental stories, and that the Lord of the Rings is a parabolic novel, and how this ultimately relates to allegory. Okay, so back to my illustration. As I was saying, we, and as Snodgrass indicates, we've got to choose, okay? We really, what we can say of allegory or parable, we could say of the other. So at the end of the day, we have to choose a classification. We know it's slippery. We know it's not perfect. Why would we choose to work with a, uh, a genre of allegory, knowing how much Tolkien says about allegory and how he dislikes it, and knowing as we've, what we've learned today? Why would we choose that? Well, because Tolkien himself says that. And so that's why I decided to say, rather than say there's different kind of parables, like for example, in John Crossan's book, he says, there's a category of parables. There's the riddle parable, the example parable, and the challenge parable. And I do liken the challenge parable to basically the fairy story and, and how I think that this is a great way, as Crossan argues, of understanding how we might say that Jesus's parables, at least many of them are an elevated kind of story that we call them challenge parables. That means they're, they're super awesome. Um, you know, but I, I could have done that. I didn't do that. So why didn't I do that? Because Tolkien didn't do that. Now, there is the one essay by his friend that indicates that Tolkien sort of showed the art of the parable. This might put us back on the track of being able to, like, like McFaig, to settle on the fact that it is a parabolic novel. But Tolkien himself didn't say it. But again, we come back to what I said earlier, too, that he may not have ever called it a parable, but even one of his good Catholic Jesuit friends perceived that. And so he seemed to be of the mind, Murray did, that even though he wasn't aware of consciously using the terminology, he was basically saying it in all but name. Okay, so we have this spectrum. So what do we, we, we or category, we say allegories or parables. I chose allegories because of Tolkien. And we have uh, on one end, the conscious and intentional allegory where, and I know this is redundant, but Whereas this type of allegory is dominated by the allegorical mode. Every aspect of the work adds up to mean something extrinsic, extrinsic to the story itself, excuse me. And all of the meanings add up to some other meaning and the story can be tossed away. It's clear, it's transparent, there's no tension, there's no mystery. It avoids opposition and confusion, all that stuff we learned. That's the conscious and intentional allegory in letter 131 that Tolkien says he did not like. He did not like that kind of allegory. And then elsewhere in the forward to the second edition of the Lord of the Rings, he says, I cordially dislike allegory and all of its manifestations. We know that. We know it. I'm so sick of hearing that quote. Uh, but then he says, and I'm going to find exactly a letter, in 186, letter 186, and I'm quoting from Joseph Pierce here, here who has also made this argument, who said, Pierce said that you know, maybe the Lord of the Rings is an allegory in one sense but not in another. And that brings us back to the spectrum illustration, right? And so Tolkien himself says in letter 186, that of course my story, The Lord of the Rings, he's referring to, is not an allegory of atomic power, but of power exerted for domination. Uh, and then uh, we think, okay, wait a second. Well, then elsewhere, he also says, you know, that uh, I wanted to e explore um, or to embody unfamiliar, um, or, or, you know, I wanted to embody lessons. I'm trying to find the quote here. I don't know if I have it on this document in unfamiliar, uh, you know, embodiments. And there he might even be really describing 
a, uh, a parable itself. So no, he never used the word, but he seems to grasp at a definition of it. He says in letter 153, to have as one object, there it is, the elucidation of truth and the encouragement of good morals in this real world by the ancient device. What does he mean by that? Parable, I think, by of exemplifying them in unfamiliar embodiments. That's the very definition of a metaphor. And these tend to bring them home, he says. So yeah, I think he says it without saying it. So we have the conscious and intentional on one end. The conscious and intentional allegory is dominated by the allegorical mode. We might say that in this type of story, we see very little to none uh, of the metaphorical mode. It's not suggestive or implicit at all. It is, it is calling all the shots for you. And on the other end of the spectrum, we might speculate in a very slippery way, but I think an accurate way now, that there is the fairy story, which again, when I read this essay, and I've read it for so many years now, and after all that I've researched, I've come to the conclusion that even though the word is never used, and even though it is fraught with conflations with allegory, and, and I know that's the case all the time, Tolkien's description of, of fairy story and the realm of fairy itself seems to resemble what McFaig and others have discussed about parable as extended metaphor, or we might say succinctly as a parabolic novel, as Jesus's parables are the primary example of, the, of this, although they weren't novel length, right? It doesn't matter. Length doesn't determine the form necessarily. Some parables are short, some are long. I meant to exploit this a little bit more in my book, and I noticed a typo recently of all, of all things. Um, I said that length doesn't determine, but then I say that, you know, um, parables are understood as short fictions, but Jesus's parables are often short fictions. Anyway, um, we have this spectrum now, and now we can see the relationship. So we have these different, we have these two different kinds of allegories. One is dominated by the allegorical mode, the other is not. Um, and, and ultimately, as I say, uh, and as Snodgrass argues, as, as I am in my own book, it's impossible to separate parables and allegories into two distinct literary forms. I really just don't think it's necessary. And so instead I say, pick one. And that's what we did. And again, I cited Tolkien's letters as justification for why we picked allegory. That's why I did, but I'm fine. It would be really, according to Snodgrass and others, saying the exact same thing. If I said, well, fine, we're working with a classification of parables, and maybe this does sound better to people. I don't know, but I don't really care. I'm going by what Tolkien said. Um, we have different kinds of parables. And this is certainly what Crossan argues. And then we have one that is what we might call an allegory and the other that is, you know, again, now we'd have the problem, a, a parably parable. <laughs> uh, well, we would say a, a very metaphorical parable. And you can see that it's ultimately making the same point. So that's why I chose the way I chose. I hope you've learned a lot today. Uh, I, I see this as almost a lecture uh, on most of the, the technical themes in my book and also some of the news material I'm working on for C.S. Lewis. It also rearranges things in my book and also sets the stage for my new book on C.S. Lewis in a way that I hope is very helpful for my book on Tolkien and also gives you some added insights. I don't want to say that this settles the issue, but I do want to say with one last ringing endorsement that for, for goodness sake, Father Robert Murray was a Jesuit friend of Tolkien who read drafts of the Lord of the Rings and to whom he corresponded with in the letters on several occasions. And in these letters, Tolkien became his most explicit in saying that his stories were Christian and that he deliberately made them so. And we hear from all the time that, you know, if he did this, it would make it an allegory. Well, okay, sure it does. 
It just doesn't make it the kind of allegory that Tolkien dislikes. So, okay, what does it make it? Well, Murray tells us it makes it very evident that Tolkien knew from his master, his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the art of the parable, and that this is a parabolic novel. It is dominated not by the allegorical mode, but by the metaphorical mode, as any good parable should. And as we've already explored at length what that entails, I will finish by saying this means whether we look at it as a very typological story from that biblical systematic perspective, or we look at it as a, I would like to suggest we look at parabolic novels like Tolkien's and parables in general as sacramental stories where we see the, uh, the transcendent dimension, heaven, uh, manifesting itself in, in an incarnational way on earth, the higher participating in the lower, the archetype participating in the types, the types pointing to and participating in the archetype, the overlapping of the Venn diagrams, and thus we walk away seeing and tasting and knowing at the same time that God is present in the world and that there is more to reality than a material physical dimension. There is also an invisible immaterial dimension and that that dimension is more substantive, heavier, weightier than the, the, the one we think is actually weightier, the, the world of rocks and people and machinery and physical stuff, and that this is a very good thing. And it is an encouraging thought. Thank you for listening, everybody. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to become a patron and uh, support us and join us on the mission. We'll see you out there on the mission and tune in next week for my interview with Dr. Jason and Baxter on the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis, his book that he just, uh, well, is almost about to be published. It isn't out, I think, until the 15th. I will see you Wednesday at um, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Facebook and elsewhere. YouTube and podcast platforms afterwards uh, on uh, Wednesday, March 9th, again at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll see you then. Thank you again. See you out there on the mission. Bye-bye.